So if you want to turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, a few weeks ago I did a little bit more of extensive overview than I have the ability to do this morning because we need to continue on through the text. But the overall focus of the book of Hebrews is for children of God to have their hope fixed in Christ. No matter what the circumstances, no matter what the hardships, the goal of the book is to have them focus on Christ and to not lose hope. These were individuals who were living in a hostile environment. Many of them faced social pressures of their own family because they had come out of Judaism and had come to faith in the Messiah. And so there was a pull to go back to the rituals of Judaism and to turn away from Christ. But they also lived in a hostile culture where, according to other texts of the book of Hebrews, many of them had their property taken away. They were left penniless because of their faith. Many of them were imprisoned. There were all kinds of hardships, and yet in the midst of all these hardships, the goal of the writer of Hebrews was to say, you can endure it. You not only can endure it, but you can endure it without shipwrecking your faith. You can endure it and have success. And we find in chapter 11 a series of examples that are intended to encourage believers like us that no matter what is going on in the world, we have the ability, because of the work of Christ in our lives, we have the ability to endure But that ability isn't because of our own efforts. It isn't because of our own strength. It isn't because of our unique giftedness in the flesh. It's because of our faith in Christ. And so the entirety of Hebrews chapter 11 is about faith. That's what the book is focusing on. And Hebrews chapter 11 is not only just about faith. It's not an academic exercise. It's not merely a historical exercise. It's to put living, breathing examples in front of God's people so that we understand if they can do it, we can too. In fact, all of chapter 11 is, is really reflected in what the exhortation is at the beginning of chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, because of everything that happened in chapter 11, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, in other words, these are living examples, these are people whose lives are laid before us by Scripture because of this cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, the next clause could be the theme of the entire book, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So always keep at the forefront of your mind as we're going through example by example in chapter 11, that each one of them is a part of the cloud of witnesses that is supposed to allow us today to lay aside sin, that is nipping at our heels no matter where you are in the stages of life. Sin is nipping at you. It's supposed to allow us not only to lay aside that sin, but we can complete the race that God has called us to run. So everything about this chapter, even though it's interesting from a history standpoint, is supposed to be a living and breathing, flesh and blood example of what is possible for you if you're a child of God. Now, I say that, and now we're going to read about one of the few people in history that had something so profound in his life that it's not going to happen to you or me. But he's still part of the cloud of witnesses. Look down, if you will. I'm going to read just this section. I'm going to start at verse 3, but we're really this morning focusing on verse 5, the life of a man called Enoch. So I'm going to begin reading at verse 3 just to sort of piece it together, but we're going to camp when we get there on verse 5. Verse 3, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. 
By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he's dead, he still speaks. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I had originally planned on teaching verses 5 and 6 this morning, but I realized there's a lot of truth in verse 6. And once I spelled out what I wanted to talk about in verse 5, which necessarily involves some reading of some portions of the Old Testament and another section of the New Testament... We don't have time to get to that. So this morning, we're going to be focused on what is in our series, the third example of faith. The first example of faith is creation, and that's just our ability to believe that God supernaturally created all that is, comes from our having faith in Christ. The second example of faith was Abel, and we covered that his life in great detail. Even though he was murdered by his brother prematurely, his life showed itself to be pleasing to God such that all these years later, thousands of years later, we're still talking about his life as, a, as an example of godliness. But we come to this, this morning to someone named Enoch. And for many of us, if we've been around the Bible, Enoch might seem just like a neat trivia question. There are two people in the Bible we know of that, according to the Scriptures, didn't physically die a death they were just taken straight up in the heaven who were the two people elijah and enoch so enoch is the answer to a trivia question but he is not found in the record of hebrews 11 just so we'd have a neat answer we're supposed to see something about his life enoch and elijah lived exceptionally but enoch isn't put here to show that wow his life was so different than yours and i he's put here because his life in some respects was similar to ours in that the things that empowered him to do what he did came from his faith in God, a faith that we share if we know Christ. His faith was great, and according to the book of Hebrews, inspired by the Spirit of God, we can live like Enoch. We have the ability to live a life pleasing to God as Enoch did because of our faith. But to get into what the Bible says about Enoch, I need you to hold your place in Hebrews 11 and turn over to Genesis 5. In many respects, the first portions of the great hall of faith, as it were, in the book of Hebrews are really just an explanation of Genesis that you're following along in order. Abel was the first example that was laid out there. Abel was the first example... But then we come across this man, Enoch, and the Old Testament says very little about Enoch. And it's interesting because what it does say is found in one of those passages of Scripture that, if you're honest, they're hard to get through because it's found in a genealogy. Genealogies are the thing that put every faithful Bible reader to sleep in the month of January when you're trying to get through the Bible in a year and you can't get past the genealogies. And yet what you see... In Genesis chapter 5 is a genealogy, and I'll highlight something I highlighted with Abel. It assumes that Adam was a real person. Adam and Eve are real. And what follows is an indication that those weren't mythological creatures designed for some type of literary purpose. They were real flesh and blood individuals who ultimately had children that resulted in other children. Follow along with me as I read. This is the book of the generations of Adam. That's in 
Genesis 5, verse 1. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. And then we start out with Adam. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Now we know from Scripture that Seth wasn't his first child. This is just picking up and laying out that Seth was born. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now it's interesting because then it goes on to talk about Seth, and it gives some dates and times, and look what it says in verse 8. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Then they start tracking Enosh. Enosh lived 90 years, became the father of Kenan. He lived all these years, did all these things, verse 11, Enosh, and he died. Then we see Kenan, someone named Mahalalel. If you can pronounce these words, feel free to correct me afterwards. And then it goes on and on and on, and Kenan lived all these years, and he died. Then Mahalalel lived and did all these things, and he had children, sons and daughters, including someone named Jared, verse 17, and he died. Verse 18, Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. So now we finally find this historical person. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. This is almost the theme of the beginning of this, and he died, and he died. In other words, they lived their lives, they had children, Certain of them are designated for purposes of further study. And he died, and he died, and he died. Verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Methuselah is another Bible trivia question. He's the, as far as we know, he lived the longest life of anyone. But it says this. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So what we see immediately is that something has changed here, because we don't see, and he died. That familiar refrain that was dealing with this genealogy changed. What's interesting that it picks back up in verse 27 with Methuselah, and he died. And in verse 31 with Lamech, and he died. So we have this interruption of this genealogy with this man named Enoch, who by the terms of this chapter was a very young man. He only lived 300 and, what is it, 360, 365 years. Everybody else is living eight or 900 years. But we don't know much more about Enoch than what we see right there. Now I'll come back and reference some of this again, but there's one other place where Enoch is mentioned prominently. Now, I'm not going to cover it this morning. He's also mentioned in the book of Jude for a prophecy that apparently the Holy Spirit recorded that he had dealt with. But the primary other place that we see him is in a genealogy in Luke chapter 3. So if you, you're going to run out of fingers. I don't know what to tell you to do. But Luke chapter 3 is where we're going next. Again, I'll probably come back some to the Genesis text. And Luke chapter 3 is a little bit more abbreviated Luke chapter 3 
verse 23, begins a long genealogy about Jesus. Again, the Gospels that include genealogies at different times, they're dealing with establishing that Jesus had the legal right to occupy the position of Messiah. And so we go backwards in this genealogy, dealing with all of these individuals, and we eventually find in verse 37 that Lemek had been the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, and so on. So you have this brief mention that Enoch was actually in the genealogical line of Jesus Christ. So from a historical perspective, that's about all we know about Enoch. Again, we could make some assumptions, but from a biblical standpoint, this is pretty obscure material. He's not prominent. Again, he's famous because we know he didn't physically die, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But without getting too far into it, and I kind of went back and forth on how to articulate this, I'm going to take you out of our environment where I've shown you what we know about Enoch and try and say a little bit more about what would have been in the minds of the original hearers. Because Enoch, to us, might be an obscure reference, but at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, Enoch, in Jewish culture, had taken on almost mythical proportions. Enoch, within Judaism, particularly in the what we refer to now as the intertestamental period, which is just that period of time between when the Old Testament was written and the New Testament was written. There was many centuries there. And there were other books written by Jewish authors, by other people that aren't a part of Scripture. Depending on where you're looking, some of them are in something that's often referred to as the Apocrypha, that tends to take on a more specialized meaning for Catholics. But there's also various writings called Pseudepigrapha, Again, I've decided that probably to go into all that would take way too much time. But understand a lot of these books, they're not scripture, but they were accounts that were circulated widely amongst Jewish people about these people from the Old Testament. And Enoch was considered, I won't say a superman, but he had a prominent role in all these extra-biblical writings. Some individuals considered him a, a great example of repentance. You wouldn't find that from the scriptures. It's a lot of reading between the lines where you have a little statement and then they would read between the lines to do it. Others talked about him as a preacher of righteousness, which was probably true when you read in a, a reference in Jude that talks about the fact that he made proclamations about God. But at the time of the writing of this book, if you said the name Enoch, it would have triggered a different reaction in the hearts of the people, because they would have had all of this additional accumulation of materials, some probably true, some probably purely myth. So I think it's very interesting that the writer, even in what he says in Hebrews, is very succinct. He doesn't get into all of that mythological accretion built up around the life of Enoch. He just sticks and limits himself to the plain teaching of the Scripture. Which means for all those other things, and if you did a Google search on Enoch, it would pop up a million sites, and I wouldn't encourage you to read a lot of them because they're all over the map, and unless you really understand these things, it would confuse you more than would it would illuminate you. But I do think it's significant that the writer of the book of Hebrews did not address all of those other things. He stuck with the simple truths that are contained in the book of Genesis. He was writing to a Jewish audience, and if he wanted to do effect or try and pull some strings or generate emotions, there was a lot of extra-biblical material available 
But he bypassed all of that, and he kept it very simple. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. Again, verse 5 in Hebrews chapter 11. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now again, as throughout this chapter, the starting point for his discussion of Enoch is emphasis by faith. He wants to make it clear that everything that they had ever heard about Enoch was really just centered on the fact that Enoch had faith. Everything that was relevant, rather, of what they had heard was centered on the fact that he had faith. Enoch believed God. And it's remarkable what was said because of how infrequently it occurred in all of history. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And this corresponds with the text in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, which says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. God is the one doing the taking. And Hebrews makes clear, if it was obscure to us because of our understanding of things, what happened in the Genesis account. Enoch did not die a physical death in his human body. God specifically and supernaturally, for his own glory and for his own purposes, took a faithful saint of God and immediately translated him up into heaven. Yay, absolutely. I think every one of us would love if God translated us to heaven right now. No more faith, now it's sight. One moment, Enoch was living a normal life on the earth, and in an instant, he's in the presence of God for all eternity. Anytime you see all caps in the New Testament, it's normally quoting an Old Testament text, or at least quoting it in part. What we see next is, again, this, and he was not found because God took him up. That's actually a quotation of the Old Testament, but it's not from the original Hebrew. It's from the common scriptures that were circulating that day. It was a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. So the, the language of the day was the Septuagint. Many Jewish people didn't know Hebrew in the sense. And so the quotations quite often in the New Testament of Old Testament Scripture are from the Greek translation. And so that accounts for some slight wording variations. But the meaning is not changed. You could almost imagine people putting it in, just think of someone you know, of going, where's he not? Anybody seen him? Can you check over? Where is he? He was walking. Boom, he's gone. And the final statement about Enoch in verse 5 really shows the quality of life that Enoch's faith produced. Again, being held up to us as an example. says, for he, he's talking about Enoch, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now, we're going to see that that is the springboard for verse 6 that says, without faith it's impossible to please God. And there's a lot of truths that the writer is going to develop theologically that are directly tied to Enoch's life. But in this context, I want to go back and tie it in a little bit more to Genesis chapter 5. So if you can, go back over to Genesis chapter 5 if you held your place. There are some astounding images in a simple statement. But when we think in terms of, okay, why is this 
account in Hebrews in the Bible. It's so that he will be a cloud of witnesses for me as God's child so that I can lay aside sin and that I can run the race that God called me to run. I want you to go to verse 22. Verse 21 says that Enoch had apparently, at least he was the father of Methuselah at 65 years old. Verse 22. And it says this. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. Now this statement is actually included twice in the Genesis account. Enoch walked with God. The entire book of Hebrews is to encourage us to do what Enoch did. What did Enoch do? It says he walked with God. He walked with God by faith. And he did it an astounding at least 300 years before he went to heaven. I'm not going to ask who the oldest person in this room is, but I'm certain you're well short of 300 years. But what the Bible is telling us is that Enoch was able to maintain a certain type of relationship with God, and it's not foreign to us. In other words, we shouldn't look at Enoch and go, I give up. Who could do that for 300 years? No, it's supposed to cause us to say, okay, I'm going to follow his footsteps. I'm going to follow his example. It's interesting because he wasn't off, apparently, by himself. He was living a normal life. He was already a father, so he was obviously married. He says he had other sons and daughters. Some of you are on the other end of child-rearing. You have grandkids. Some of us still have children in the home. But the point was, Enoch was living a normal life. He was going through the normal processes of life. God didn't have him in a display case set off to the side so that people could walk back and look at Enoch. As far as anybody knew, he was just living. But he lived his normal life in a praiseworthy manner because the Scripture says he walked with God. And this doesn't just mean meandering down a path. This means that he had a personal, intimate relationship with the God of the universe. No doubt it involved regular communing with God through prayer. No doubt it would have involved mulling over and dwelling upon and meditating upon whatever revelation Enoch had at the time. No scripture was written at the time that Enoch was walking on the earth, scripture that's contained in our Bible, but we know God was interacting with his children. Enoch wasn't just walking along as the best Pharisee among all the other Pharisees for 300 years, checking every box, making sure that every I was dotted, every T was crossed. No, the whole focus of Genesis and that simple phrase he walked with God is that he had a personal relationship with God that didn't waver. There's some imagery, as I read certain commentators, I wouldn't go as far as they did, but if you think back of what Adam and Eve apparently had for a little bit where they walked with God before they sinned and they were kicked out of the garden. Read several thoughts at least, and I didn't think they were completely foreign, although some people took it too far, that Enoch perhaps had the closest approximation of what Adam and Eve experienced in that early point of human history. All of Scripture pleads with you and with me to do what Enoch did and to walk with God. The Psalms are full of the wisdom of walking in God's path, to walking after His ways, to being immersed in God's law. You see that in other places of the Old Testament. 
But even in the New Testament, and I'm going to read some scriptures by the Apostle Paul. I'll just ask you to write down the reference that you might not have time to turn there. But this is a dominant theme of how you are to walk the Christian life. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This idea of walking in a manner worthy, I think, would be reflected by someone like Enoch, who walked in a manner worthy of the Lord. He walked with God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This is a great prayer. I've actually preached on it here. I've taught on it in Sunday school. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church that he's never visited, he's just heard about. In fact, verses 3 through 8 tell you some of the things he's heard. But Paul says this, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, and I think Paul was in prison at the time of this writing, so these are people he would have been dealing with there, and we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and stop right there. That's why we come to church. That's why we study the Word. That's why we gather, and that's why I use Sunday school to teach Scripture. We want to be filled up with spiritual wisdom. We want to be filled up with understanding. We want to know what God has revealed in His Word, and we want to internalize it, but not so that we wind up being able to be the smartest church in Pinellas County. What does Paul go on to say? Verse 10, so that, here's the whole point of all of it, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Similarly, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 to 12, the Apostle Paul again with an exhortation, you are witnesses, and so is God, how devotely and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's 1 Thessalonians 2, 10-12. Let me tell you, all of those exhortations, all of this picture, this really is supernatural. In other words, you don't do this in the flesh. We can only walk in this manner by the empowering of the Spirit of God. But according to the Scriptures, the fruit of the Spirit found, for example, in Galatians 5, should permeate the life of a believer, and that is evidence that we are walking with God. This is the hardest part of how to stress this to you. Even as I was driving in this morning, I was thinking to myself, Joe, you can walk with God. That might seem like an odd thing, but as I'm driving here, I'm thinking to myself and I'm thinking about what I have to do this week and all the various responsibilities and all the things that I'm already thinking, how am I going to do this? I had to remind myself, Joe, you can walk with God. And I want you to understand that even though Enoch was an exceptional man who had exceptional faith, you have the same faith if you believe in Jesus Christ. You do. You actually have advantages, as odd as that may sound, given that Enoch for 300 years was able to maintain an unbroken relationship with God. You have advantages he didn't have. Because we, on this side of the cross, 
at the moment of our placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the living God resides in each one of His children, enabling us to fulfill this constant exhortation of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, of walking with God by faith like Enoch did. Let me encourage you, and this is one of those things where my days as a lawyer in the past trip me up because I want to qualify everything with 15 caveats to make sure that nothing could be misunderstood. But that's not the most effective way to talk to people. So I'm going to try and be a little bit more succinct. Let me encourage you, don't adopt a fatalistic approach to your Christian walk. What do I mean by this? What if God gave us 300 years? He's not going to. If God gave us 300 years, even with the Spirit of God indwelling us, we're going to stumble. We're going to fall short. There are going to be times when our flesh trips us up. There are going to be times when our will is not conformed to the will of God, but we follow our old sin nature, and we stumble, and we sin. So what do I mean by a fatalistic approach? A fatalistic approach would take that reality and say, yes, I understand that's theologically true, and say, so therefore I can't try. That I'm going to sin. I'm doing the best I can. Let me tally up the week ahead of me. I'm probably going to sin three days. I'll be pretty good four days. That's good enough. Don't think that way. Don't allow to come into your mind the idea that I am saved, but I can't have victory over sin. I'm saved, but this just overwhelms me. I can't do enough to get past it. I'm saved, but I'm no Enoch. I don't have the ability to walk with God. Don't believe it. Because God has given us every spiritual resource we need to enable us to walk by faith, to walk with God. I don't have it in my notes, so give me just a second to make sure I'm telling you the right verse. But as a new believer... 1 Corinthians 10.13 was something I really had to dwell on. Some of you may have it memorized. If you don't, just write it down. But this verse encapsulates what I'm trying to exhort you towards, which is that you can live an obedient life if you live it by faith. I don't know the trials and tribulations that you're enduring. I don't know how difficult it is at your workplace. I don't know how difficult perhaps your adult children are. I don't know how hard it is for your circumstance to have whatever challenges are in front of you, but I can promise you this from the Word of God. Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, the trials, the tribulations, the difficulties you face are not unique to you. Your life is unique. You're a unique person. But the point is, whatever your struggle is, someone else in the kingdom of God has those similar struggles. And God is faithful. That's what it says. And God is faithful who will not allow you. That pronoun is personal. If you're his child, this is talking to you. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. The whole point of this is for us to lay aside sin, to get out of this rut where we're tangled up and tripped 
almost like your shoelaces are tied together as you're trying to get away from sin and you keep falling and tripping. And all of these examples, including Enoch, are supposed to tell us how to get our shoelaces apart. How we're supposed to stop stumbling and falling. And my exhortation to you, memorize a text like this that reminds you that God is faithful. He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. If anyone ever tells you as a believer, or if you ever say it to yourself, well, I didn't have a choice, I had to sin because it was beyond me, either you're lying or Scripture's lying. And I'm going to promise you, Scripture's not lying. But here's a beautiful truth. If you are going to fight this battle, and if even today you're going to commit your heart to say, you know what, Lord, I don't want to be entangled by sin. I want to run with the race with endurance. One of the great promises to me in Scripture, if you're serious about sin, I've broken this up. Let me go back and reread all of verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Let me encourage you. Anytime you are tempted to sin, somewhere there's an escape hatch. You have to open your eyes to look for it. You have to desire to avoid sin. But God is never going to allow you to be in a situation where you're so completely overwhelmed you don't have any hope. saw an image this week on the news. There was some flooding somewhere. I don't remember where it was. And I don't have this in my notes. It just popped in my mind to remember it. There was a picture of these two cars and it was a flood. And it was dirty flood water. I mean, it was a mess. And these cars are just floating. I mean, they're knocking things over. They're just floating along. And at times, if we're not careful, that becomes an image of what we think is our Christian life. The world's just a muddy, dirty place, and it's flowing along, and I don't have any hope. I'm just being pushed around. The life of Enoch says, no. God doesn't want you pushed around by the mud and the water and the muck of this world, but you can walk with God if you have faith. So let me encourage you. Reflect on the life of Enoch, not as some historical exceptional figure who is mythical, but understand that the faith that Enoch had in the one true God is the same faith that you have if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And just like Enoch, if the Lord gives you another two years or 20 years or 50 years, it can be said of you, he or she walked with God. Let me close this with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are weak creatures. And yet, Lord, you redeemed weak creatures like us. You sent your Son to die on the cross for sinners of which we, when we're honest with ourselves and with you, are the worst. And yet, Lord, you didn't leave us in sin. You sent your Spirit to indwell us. You've given us your Word to illuminate our way. And Lord, you've given us a great cloud of witnesses extending back to the beginning of human history that show us it is possible to walk with you. So I pray, Lord, that we would take encouragement from the life of Enoch. Lord, I thank you for 
his place in scripture. I thank you for the faith that you gave him. But I also thank you, Lord, that you've given us the same faith. In fact, Lord, we understand more the object of our faith. Enoch can only look ahead to what might be. Lord, we can look back and see what Christ really did. And I pray that you would enable each one of us with that knowledge to live obedient lives so that it can be said of us, we walked with God. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.